morning. It's lovely to see you. You're all in very deep conversations this morning. I always hate to br- stop talking, stop having these meaningful conversations. Um, big welcome. My name's Tamsin. My pronouns are she, her. Um, it's lovely to be here. Thanks to Shane who brought extra coffee beans and saved the morning. Appreciate that, Shane. <laughs> Woohoo! I know, indeed. Um, we are... Here we go. Um, As Rod shared before, we're in the middle of a series, or just starting off a series, um, looking at the traditions that have formed us, um, our practice, our time together, our spiritual experience now. Um, And we'd hope to do it in a form where we would sort of talk about a tradition one week, and the next week we would just dive in and do it, and have a whole week devoted to embracing that tradition. But given that we're not people that attend every week. (laughs) There's very little likelihood that you would have gotten two weeks in a row. Um, So we just decided to bring those two together um, and talk a little bit about it, practice it a little bit and kind of um, look at how this tradition kind of is relevant to us. Um, And Rod gave us this wonderful image. This one. (laughs) What is that all about? Um, So he talked about you know, the religious landscape can sometimes feel like a, a monocrop in agricultural terms of sort of something that's planted in a space, um, a single thing that doesn't really take into what was before. I think he had some points. Um, whoops. Oh, no, I've jumped the gun. Um, planting the same thing everywhere. Everything local was considered a weed or pest. If you destroy the soil, you just move on to the next patch of land. And um, the kind of in linking that to a religious landscape, um, that really sort of insensitive um, religious experience that's um, both slightly arrogant in that one thinks it is just a single thing, um, or but also it is not necessarily generative to where it lives. Um, and another image that we could that Rod talked in, gave us this great picture. I just thought I didn't want to ruin it because there's just cabbages in there. So I do like a garden with a cabbage in it. Um, But this image that our religious landscape experience is like a garden, um, a sort of a biodiverse layered garden that um, sort of starts by sort of a sense of curiosity, what is there before we came to this place. what is planted suits the soil and climate. Um, And there's a sustainable relationship with country or with the land that it's on. And that um, our religious religious experience um, is a bit more like this. Um, There's diversity. There's threads of traditions here and there. As each new person comes and meets us here, you bring something new from your own tradition and your experience. Um, but we, and at times we take things out that no longer serve us. So it, it's a helpful image that um, kind of leaves us wondering which tradition is the cabbage? It left me wondering. Maybe it's Pentecostalism. Who knows? <laughs> we'll get there another week. Um, but... Yeah, today, this week we're going to... I'm going to jump back. I'm having fun with the clicker today. Um, look at Christian mysticism, um, which is a term... I don't know if you've heard the term before, um, but it kind of got me a little bit excited because it's um, part of our heritage that I far have found to be 
fascinating to look at. Um, possibly my nature is a little more inclined, not to this moment and such as me, but just I'm a little more inclined to um, the mystical world of engaging with the divine through experience. Um, we'll look at it a bit more what it is. So, um, and, and also I've had random experiences in my life that have altered my life's trajectory, which I'm forever unpacking. So that is a very very similar to the, that which would be considered of the mystical tradition also. So I guess that's where, for myself, um, I've connected to this, this whole tradition called Christian mysticism. Um, oh, so now I get to jump through all the, sorry, the garden field. So the mystical, this sort of word. So today is going to be a little bit wordy, as I said. Um, we really could do a whole series on the mystics, on even just the traditions. So I'll do my best to just sort of do a simplified version. So the word mystical comes from sort of two words, the Sanskrit word mu, I think it's pronounced, which is associated with being tongue-tied or hushed to silence. And in its Greek origin, it's mustikos, which means secret, hidden or closed. Uh, most often in regards to an encounter that is such a nature that it cannot be uttered with any clarity. Uh, mystical religions, therefore, were considered to hold hidden insight and experiences that are not available to everyone. So this would be old, old mystical religions would be secret wisdom that can be attained by some and then shared rather than something that is attained by everyone. The term mysticism, um, so this is found across all sorts of uh, religious expressions, um, often described as an experience of divine presence or the capacity to touch and be touched by the source of all life. An experience of divine presence or the capacity to touch and be touched by the source of all life. Some would call that ultimate reality in some traditions. Um, it has threads through Christianity, obviously, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, and looks very different. So mysticism will look very different in these just traditions. Um, this wonderful professor that I found called Dr. Carlos Ayer talked about it's crossing over from sense, perception, and linear reason to another dimension where God exists. I did love this picture. This is kind of old school Christian worldview, <laughs> but this sense that there's this, this is the, I think it's called, it's an etching from an unknown artist. Um, the, the, the monk, the monk discovers the divine, I think it was called. Um, so this idea that this monk living a life peers out into another realm uh, that not everyone might see, that lives in this worldview would have been that exists just past the stars. So if you didn't know, God lives just past the stars that we see. That's where God lives. Um, but then they would come back and share of the insight seen on this other side. So that kind of links us to kind of, so this is the mystical idea, but Christian mysticism, I've got a whole bunch of photos today, old pictures and painted photos. This is a photo of a, a second century that I, that I retrieved from the interweb. Um, uh, but Christian mysticism sort of moved past the, the Greek and the Sanskrit uh, term, just mystic of something that is secret, to being sort of this knowing of something 
through the lens of Christ. So this sort of taking the threads of these other traditions to say, well, now we live in this with this truth and story of Christ, but we still work in this world of the encounter of the divine through Christ. So that part or element of Christian belief and practice that concerns the preparation for, the consciousness of, and the effect of a direct and transformational presence of God. Um, It's interesting as we kind of look at some of this, I, I can't help but sort of see the threads that we pick up in our other Christian, like the of Pentecostalism or if you're from a charismatic movement, some of these are very sort of beautiful arcing threads of, of um, experience over reason or um, encounters of the divine, preparing oneself for an encounter of the divine, having an experience of something and then the what happens next. You know, that path is a path that is well trodden in our... Um, a Christian movement. Um, in the Christian sense, the experience of another reality is more real, so that the Christian mystic would say the experience of the God space is more real than this space, or it transforms this space. The two, there's uh, two movements in the Christian mystical tradition which has arced over this whole time, one is the, the person's movement to God and the other movement is just not the effort, is the awareness of God's ongoing movement to you so, or to the person. So it's never just the work and different times through this long timeline, the, the effort has been elevated and honoured more than the reception. So the, um, the work and the preparation, the fasting and all these things that the mystical uh, tradition sort of wove into the mystic's life of the doing of the person was always met with this. All that was doing was making you aware of the divine movement that is always occurring back. So I find that side of it of just the, the endless divine movement down into the space and all this is doing is of making us awake to that. I love that image, of, of but it's, um, yeah, the, the mystics did have a huge part of it that was the preparation of my, my, my carnal self that needs all this work in order to be able to see God. So we will see a bit more about this, this view of the person that must be tamed and disciplined in order to see this great flow of God's love coming at us. This must be tamed in order to see that in its full clarity. Um, Sometimes Christian mystics would be all about Christ or the image of Christ so that they would reflect on Jesus and the story of Jesus and everything being about Jesus and that is sort of Christ mysticism of Christ becomes illuminated through the mystic's life. Some would be through the Trinity, so the wondrous reflection of God's relationship with the Spirit and the incarnation, this flow. Some would be Trinitarian mystics. Um, and some, which perhaps resonate with some in the room, would be called uh, negative mysticism. <laughs> Who loves that term? Um, but that's all the apophatic mystic, which is saying the God that we find is never the God that is. So our whole spiritual devotional life is the scraping away of the God that we're forming because God always lives just behind that. And so there's a whole tradition of 
apophatic or negative, taking away the God. God or Meister Eckhart would say, God, free me from God so I can see God. Um, the Desert Fathers, so this is a, a picture of, of our Desert Father friend. Um, these people would devote, the early mystics would be ones who retreat from the world of all its woes in order to focus on prayer, focus on scripture and focus on the path of divine seeing in restricted ways. Um, I don't know if I could do, but you can, I don't know that there's, you may have in your travels come across people who've lived such a, a life of restriction and recluse in order to move away from the world, but these early mystics would retreat. Um, further on, they would re-enter the world, but some of the early mystics wouldn't. They would simply, a life in reflection was a life worthy of, of God and um, in order to in order to see and experience. Another, I sort of, as I was looking through some of this, it was in Christian mysticism, there's sort of two paths. One is the vision or an encounter that is followed by the lifestyle. One is the lifestyle that is followed by an encounter and not necessarily an encounter of the divine, just in preparation for this seeing of something of another realm. Um, and so much in scripture, it's, we see the vision happens first, an encounter that alters the path rather than the path that is, um, occurs first. Uh, the whole monastic movement started as the, the lifestyle that proceed, might precede an encounter. You can see this formulation of a whole way of being in anticipation of some divine, mystical experience. Um, so, today in our little brief intro to Christian mystics. I did wonder in the room, uh, with a big disclaimer, um, if we wanted to share possibly at tables um, of an experience that you've had that feels like it is of another space-time realm or experience of God, doesn't even need to be have that terminology attached to it, where one saw or felt or encountered something beyond the rational mind and it showed you of something of God, um, comes with a caveat because that's like saying, tell me when you first spoke in tongues and that just this kind of hierarchy of Christianity of going, this is more important than this. Having a mystical encounter is not the be-all and end-all. Many Christian mystics wouldn't give much credit that it must come with a lifestyle of devotion for it to hold any weight or gravity at all. So, so all, your, all your experiences would have been foofed anyway. So I was wondering if you have had an encounter and you feel safe to do so, um, and it could be an encounter with nature, as Rod shared before, that is as mystical as anything. Uh, would we like to do that at tables today or are you feeling like maybe just not quite ready for table stuff? Tables got a bit of table table um, so let's just take a few moments um, jump join another table a few and I've put two questions um, that you might want to just touch on as we look at how this is possibly something we've connected with have there any been been any moments in your life an experience of God not necessarily God that have been mystical in nature meaning something is seen through a lens into something another space and the second is what impact have they had on the larger story of your faith or your story. Um, if 
sometimes it's very hard to explain what occurs in this space. So even just talk, you can share the context of something that happened and the impact without saying that thing that happened. Um, yeah. Yeah, let's take a few minutes and do that. Um, find a few people on a table, um, gather around and we'll share any weird and wonderful stories that you might have. Does anyone, um, sorry to cut off big sharing. <laughs> um, there's nothing, yeah, nothing small about um, some of these questions. Um, does anyone want to share with the group, if you would like, um, some really um, yeah, fascinating things at our table of um, an experience that you can't put together and then spend a lot of time pulling apart or following or re-examining, um, but it alters the path. Um, does anyone have something they want to share? I guess, like, rather than sharing an experience, just sharing, like, our table's experience of, like, a couple of us grew up with an expectation, like, within Pentecostalism, an expectation of divine experiences. And that came with a whole bunch of other baggage and stuff, obviously. But also this really wonderful kind of naive thing of interpreting any kind of experience of wonder and delight and love as a divine encounter. And then others in our table would grow up in a context where that was, was repressed and not allowed. And it's thinking about how we may have had really similar experiences but interpreted them through such different lenses that one of us can go, no, I've never had that experience. Another can go, I've had so many of those things and just so much of your expectation of what spirituality actually is. And then, yeah, then the, then the complexity of those of us who've kind of transitioned out from that kind of faith and then look back on some of that stuff and some of the coercion, some of the manipula manipulation for those experiences and go, how do you not just throw it all out of <laughs> the bathwater? Yeah. It's um, a really good question. And, um, yeah, that kind of like the theology that we form around this is so significant. Um, but, yeah, I like that idea of this is like a living garden of just we, we're looking for the spaces of life um, and we're able to continue that, you know, and pull stuff out and go back to stuff that, yeah, I find that interesting. Thank you, Jane. Anybody else would like to...? Um, we went to Bhutan, which is a bit of a name dropper, but we went up to the Tiger Monastery, um, which is set up by a Buddhist monk, and it was... Um, the story goes that the Buddhist... Uh, this monk came from another country, Tibet, and landed up on the top of a mountain and meditated for about three months or something in a cave. And um, he brought with him positive spirits and vibes. And, um, and as a result, they built this beautiful tiger monastery, which we visited. And it was a sense of amazing um, spiritual peace. And I didn't know it was Buddhist, but it was just a very significant experience and the fact was that he then went on and got rid of a lot of evil spirits in the valley and we felt that was you know that was his reason to be but it was just an amazing spiritual experience thanks Lou and Pat um because of because of time um, I don't want to go through all of these scriptures but um it's yeah there's I was sort of looking at the lens of, like, encounter with this thing we just so loosely call God in Scripture. There's just so many encounters of 
experiences of God that we're then unpacking, um, which essentially is the mystical path. Um, I've just got a f- oh, I'm just going to run out of time quickly. But um, does anyone just want to read? There's a few sh- one one a short little scripture, just a short little one. Could you read just the first one? Genesis 17, 1 to 5. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared and said, I am the breasted one. Walk in my presence and be blameless. I will make a covenant between you and me, and I will increase your numbers exceedingly. Abram fell on his face before God, and God said to him, This is my covenant with you. You will be the ancestor of many nations. You are no longer to be called Abram, respected parent, but Abraham, progenitor of a multitude, for you are the progenitor of a multitude of nations. In the Psalms, which are sort of the response or that kind of desire to return to it, the presence of God, um, in Psalm 42, you, remember, you might have been grown up with a song of, What's that song, Like a Deer Pants for the Water, So My Soul Longs After You? Is there a song? Yeah, anyway, we grew up with that one. But, um, but all those dear, dear psalms are like this kind of craving for God, the truest God experience. And so, like a stag, a doe, longs for streams of cool water. My whole being longs for you, my God. My soul aches with thirst for God, for a God that lives. Where can I go and see God face to face? So we see this thread of... Where do we go to see and experience God in a way that we can't right now? Then we get to the story of Jesus where this, the, the trans, this moment on top of a mountain where Peter took, uh, Jesus took Peter, James and John. And before their eyes, Jesus was transfigured, his face becoming dazzling as the sun and his clothes as radiant as light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them conversing with Jesus. And Peter said, Rabbi, how good that we are here, or how good that we are here to see this. With your permission, I'd like to erect three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them all. Out of the cloud came a voice that said, this is my own, my beloved, on whom my favour rests. Listen to him. It's this moment of a witness of a divine nearness or closeness or moment And then in Scripture, there's the big kind of moment of Paul, who also was struck. Thus, here's... (laughs) I do love a dramatic painting. So this is the dramatic of Paul being struck a bit like this from his horse. doesn't say there was a horse, but I love that the Caravaggio decided a horse without a saddle that was ever so lovely should be Paul's. So he'd gone up to the high priest. Paul was persecuting... Full of anger. Um, he was planning more persecutions, and as he traveled along, he was approaching Damascus. A light from the sky suddenly flashed about him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Saul asked. The voice answered, I am Jesus, and you are persecuting me. Get up now and go into the city where you will be told what to do. Everyone was speechless. They heard the voice but could see no one. Paul got up from the ground, unable to see, even though his eyes were open. And the scripture, just these moments of, like I've never really thought, oh, these are, the, these are stories, but these are recollections of 
mystical experiences of moments where the veil has been thinned. And so the whole mystical movement is a response to the scriptures that show that God can be seen and encountered and that people can live a life in response to that. Um, and there is, um, just found out that Tracy is a, a Mystics fan, so a myst- Mystic sounds like a basketball team, a mystical, um, a fan of the Mystics, I should say. Um, but there's some people who kind of encapsulate the life of a Mystic, and the life of a Mystic would hold stages and it would hold practices of someone's whole life. Um, one Mystic had their first, uh, Hildegard of Benin had their first mystical experience at age, Three, so it is recalled, having someone who has a three-year-old. I, I see very little mystical signs, but, but who am I to say that she, maybe she's just always in a perpetual, what I'm experiencing is just a kid in state of per, perpetual mystical ecstasy. Just looks like terrifying to me. Um, but but the, So these mystics have these lives that are recounted of they encounter something and then they live a life following that. They encounter something more. Some of them form a theology based off that, a teaching practice. They write books. People study what they saw rather than everyone trying to be a mystic. Um, it was what we trust the revelations of another. Um, as Shane was saying, like sort of in the kind of Pentecostal world where sort of every single person was a, an avenue and a spot, considered a spot of divine moments, every Sunday could have been a moment where you encountered God. In the mystical tradition, that wasn't the case. This was... The few whom had noteworthy encounters were to be revered and learned from and they had a life of accountability in that it wasn't just a one-off and they just went off and told you, God told you to do these 12 things, but it's this, oh, this whole life of notability, of devotion, of adhering to the, the church, to scripture, of wrestling in alone or, and they're then recognised as a notable life Therefore, notable visions, therefore the wisdom from those visions can be adopted as teaching. Um, So, Teresa, if we think, like we don't place a lot of religious expectation on our community. (laughs) Who did their Bible study this morning? Who had their hour of quiet time? Anybody? Anyone? (laughs) I did not. Um, But this kind of lifestyle of the mystic, um, St. Teresa, if we had a week, if we have, maybe we'll have a series on the mystics at some point. Um, she had she wrote this she had this vision about the interior castle, and in there there's seven chambers or seven mansions. You can kind of see of this kind of picture of this sort of you move through them until you get to divine. So it's not just I encounter God straight. It's I move through denial. I move into this. I move into quietude, and then only after all this work, and I've it sacrificed the ego and the need to be. I then encounter something of noteworthy. Um, and um, she has this advice, which you might recall from other traditions you've been a part of. So she says in the wisdom, I think it's in mansion number two of the seven, avoid associating with evil or mediocre people. (laughs) Instead, associate with people pursuing Christ. That's why we're all here together. (laughs) Begin to embrace the cross rather than run away from it. There's one over here if you need one right now. Don't stop at accepting sufferings. Begin to actually desire them. It's not me, St. Teresa. All right, don't, don't. 
make following God's will a central part of your life. I feel like I've had a sermon on that somewhere in my history. Don't give up when you fall. Go to God for forgiveness and continue the race. Oh, I'm getting triggered. <laughs> um, stay faithful to daily prayer. But I, what I found interesting, she's this 14th century mystic of those practices that she recommended as one stage in many stages have been adopted by church for many. You know, you could probably go to any church in Melbourne and some of this would be repeated as good advice for today. Um, but essentially... But, um, a mystic whom I, another mystic who I feel perhaps has impacted us here is Julian of Norwich. Why does she have a cat, Tamsin? <laughs> because she's awesome, is correct. Um, there's the kind of curious of why does she have a cat. One is because apparently she lived in a small annex off a church rather than in a monastery. So similar to like if we just annexed Brunswick Room and put someone, you know, um, uh, who felt the call to the devotion life can just live in there and we just feed you. Sounds all right, actually. Um, and, but it was during the time of the Black Plague, which doesn't sound right. So she was given a cat from the church to eat the mice to protect her. And thus she's always often crafted with a cat. Um, or she loves cats as well, I don't know. But Julian of Norwich was a 14th century English mystic. And she, her central thing was in all her digging and devotion and the kind of humbling herself and at the heart of it she would discover many layers of what the love of God is like so it's not the mystical tradition doesn't necessarily look so much at what justice is of how we change the world as such but it's how we touch the love at the heart of Christ and at the heart of God and what that does in turn is transform us um, but she she's um, she's quite a positive I would say mystic um, she became seriously ill at the age of 30 and in the midst of her suffering she prayed for a vision of Christ, on Christ's passion. And then somewhere in her quiet, dark suffering she heard the words, I am the foundation of your praying. And those words just influenced the rest of her spiritual life. She always pointed to the goodness and love of God and for her that was a light in a very dark time of the Black Plague. And she, she equated divine love with motherly love, a theme found in the prophets. And according to Julian, God is both our mother and our father. So you can see that in our threads of our theology that we try and hold of God as loving parent, not simply as father. And for her, even Christ was considered, there is nothing that comes closer to how much God loves us as the image of a mother embracing a child um, or for even nursing a child, that image, there's nothing better to explain the love of God that God has for us. So I, I love that many mystics come back to the love of God. You know, of all the things, that is the thing that's most captured at the heart. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, is what she said. So, um, we're right on the t finishing time. So, we, we're not going to get a chance to practice our beautiful Lectio Divina, which we might do another week. Um, but this, um, the mystics influence us. The mystics influence those who influence us. If anyone's heard the word Richard Rohr, um, Richard Rohr would be considered of the mystical path of the contemplative tradition. And he's tried to weave in psychology, which is wise, because mystics often had a, a dark 
distrust of the flesh, of our sinful carnal natures. We can't be trusted to this. We must only trust the the spirit. But Richard Rohr has done some beautiful work of going, oh, you must hold a healthy psychology in order to have a robust theology. They must go hand in hand. And it must find its way out into the world in some action um, that encountering love has a flow-on effect. Um, So I see, and we talk about Richard Rohr a lot here, um, as someone has said of me, I hear you quote Richard Rohr much more than Jesus. (laughs) That is true. Um, So we're not going to do a Lectio Divina, which is a a practice of, because we don't have time today. Um, But what I thought, um, just in a moment, we um, might come to um, communion, um, a very old practice, um, and, and at a practice that at times people would expect this to be another meeting place where our head is pushed through the veil of some form and we meet the mystery once again. And at the heart of that mystery is that deep message that we all need at, is the message of love and of a God approaching and a God coming love. Um, so what I thought we'd do today is um, I'm going to light a candle as a symbol of this mystical God whom, you know, we have to use our imagination for at times deeply experience. Sometimes we discipline a life in order to get, see a bit clearer. Um, But, uh, so I'm going to light the candle and we will come in a circle and hold a moment of, not silence, but quiet. You can imagine, perhaps you are like Julie of Norwich, living in our quiet retreat of a life Days and days of, of quiet, just listening and gentle reflection on scripture with your cat. Um, <laughs> like this, <laughs> stroking your cat. Um, uh, that's not a, it's, that's a literal cat for those on the podcast. Um, and yeah, so we'll have a moment of quiet before we take communion. If you don't want to take communion today, it's, it's one of our practices that has come out of a long part of our history. But you're welcome to just stand in a circle with us. You're welcome to stay seated. Um, and after that, I'm going to read a little benediction. Um, and I might try in the next few weeks, still another week, and we might do part B of mystical practices because I think it's, it's interesting to look at our life as recipients of this tradition and also people who some of us in the room deeply resonate with this tradition and it's our access point to rekindling our faith or restoring our faith or our language with God. This makes a lot of sense. Um, And, yeah, it's also other traditions. It's heavily influenced so many other things. We're going to do a week on Quakerism and and this is completely connected to Quakerism as well so they all feed into one another. Does that sound okay? All right. So I'm going to light the candle. Feel free and... I know that Corwin is pretty keen on those crackers. Um, Feel free to grab a cracker, um, grab a juice, and we'll stand in a large circle. Yahweh, my God, you are the one I seek. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in this dry and weary land where there is no water. So I look to you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you, and so I bless you while I live. In your name I lift up my hands. My soul will be sated with this sumptuous feast, and with euphoric cries I will praise you, and remember you while I'm, when I'm in bed. Through sleepless nights I meditate on you, because you are my help, 
and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Let's eat and drink together. And this final benediction, you can read the words on the screen if you like. May we honour the gift of this tradition, its wisdom and its beauty. May we honour those who devoted their life to its path and met you there. While we recognise its limits, may it continue to be a source of life for us. And may we listen to the ongoing call into your very self, into love. Amen. Amen.